Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. Together here briefly. My name is Mark Garen. I'm the director of the Institute of Politics, and we warmly welcome you here with our dean Doug Elmendorf, and great collaboration with CBG to, to have this really interesting conversation with with Jack Lew. We're delighted that he braved the snow and about four flight delays uh, at the airport to get here. So we thank him especially for that. We're glad to have our own IOP fellows here, Senator Heitkamp. Very kind. For being here, but we have um, in Jack Lew a great model, I would argue, of public service. And I've been privileged that our lives have intersected along the way since our time here as undergraduates at Georgetown Law School. But he brings to us a conversation really informed by his career in public service on Capitol Hill, senior leadership roles for Speaker O'Neill and Mr. Monkley here from Massachusetts, uh, in the Clinton administration, where he was with Eli Siegel. Uh, really the early architect in designing and designing what is now AmeriCorps and the Corporation for National and Community Service. And of course, his work at OMB, higher education at NYU, in the private sector. And then importantly, in uh, the Obama administration, where his public service was extraordinary. From his work as uh, Deputy Secretary of State, Chief of Staff, to OMB Director, and of course, as Treasury Secretary. So he comes to us with uh, enormous public service and attachment and understanding of, of Harvard and the Kennedy School and the Institute of Politics in important ways. So, a great person to be in conversation with him is Karen Dyne, a professor of practice here at the Economics Department at the Kennedy School, who herself brings <coughs> her own um, important educational background, coming out of here in the Economics Department, PhD, and uh, service as Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy and Chief Economist under Secretary. Lou, and senior leadership roles from Brookings Institution to Council of Economic Advisors to the Federal Reserve Bank staff. So we thank you, Karen, for moderating, and Jeff, welcome back to Harvard. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for that nice introduction, Mark. Uh, that was terrific. Uh, I think that captured um, your career in Washington so well, Jack. Um, I have to say, this is the fact that you had such a long and distinctive career is uh, one of the reasons, uh, even before I met you, I already felt like you were this kind of legend in Washington. Um, I think it helped that you are an expert in so many different areas. Um, so the budget, of course, which is near and dear to my heart as an economist, um, but you also had uh, important uh, you know, jobs where you did uh, management, and uh, you also understood the political dynamic so much better than anyone I'd ever worked for before. So um, I really kind of loved my time at Treasury and appreciated the opportunity to learn from you. Um, so I'm going to start with a few questions for you, and then what we're going to do is going to open it up to the broader uh, audience. Um, so uh, you know, one of the things that is so distinctive about your career is the long time you've spent in Washington in different roles. And um, there's so much discussion nowadays 
of how our government, particularly our federal government, is dysfunctional. Um, so I was wondering if you could start with some comments on how you see political dynamics as having evolved over the decades, uh, particularly regarding partisanship and more generally the ability just to get things done. Well, first, thank you, uh, Mark and Karen, for the very generous uh, introduction. Uh, if, if not deserved, I appreciated it. And um, uh, not to date myself too much, uh, I remember being involved with the Institute of Politics when it was in a little house on Mount Auburn Street, and we were working on organizing the first training program for newly elected members of Congress with Jonathan Moore. So it, it was a long time ago. Um, Karen, uh, I have lived through several periods that at the time were described as the worst, most partisan times we ever lived through. Um, it's certainly felt that way before, I, well, I was in government as a very junior level in the early 1970s um, uh, during the, the end of the Nixon administration um, at the point of conflict between the Clinton administration and Speaker Gingrich um, with government shutdowns. There was a sense that it had never gotten that bad before. Now, coming out of that in both cases, was a kind of pendulum swinging back to something more normal. Um, you know, in the case of the 70s, you had Republicans and Democrats worked together on things still. It was the old Republican Party where you had people who were fiscally conservative and socially liberal in the Republican Party who were much more likely to work with Democrats than a lot of uh, conservative Democrats, particularly Southern Democrats. So you, you had a different <coughs> different playing field in the Congress. Um, things have changed and not in a good way. Um, I think the, the, the party system, the, the funding system of primaries, the fact that the base in each party is more demanding of total allegiance. Um, has changed the shape of politics. Um, Doug and I were just talking earlier. Um, you have to be willing to, even if you could win a general election, risk not getting the nomination of your own party to do what you think is the right thing. That didn't used to be the case. Um, it used to be, you know, I worked for Speaker O'Neill when he represented this district. Um, he was a New Deal Democrat to the last day you know, in the Congress. Um, he, you know, he knew what he believed in. But he could navigate bringing a House that was center-left to work with a Republican administration time and again by being willing to stand before the House saying, you know, this is what we need to do for the country. And did he think he could have been challenged? Yeah, he thought he could have been challenged. But at some level, he didn't care. It wasn't worth having the job if he wasn't going to do it his way. I kind of fast forward to the years when we were working with Speaker Boehner, or later with Speaker Ryan. If either of them had been willing to take that risk, they could have been great speakers. Um, so it sounds like you're talking about um, more structural change than something that's cyclical that will correct itself on its own. So I think the pendulum is cyclical. I, I, I'm. I mean, you, we were, you and I were just talking about you know, a conversation we had the day after the election. I deeply believe, and the midterm elections prove that there's reason to be 
confident of this, that the pendulum in American politics does swing back and forth. Um, you know, I, for one, believe that we need a vibrant two-party system in order to find the right answers on a lot of questions. And I don't think it's an accident that some of the most important things in the last 50 years have happened during periods of divided government when you had strong parties on both sides. Um, I don't think we're in a normal period now. Um, I, 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 and I don't think it started just two years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at the immigration issue in, in the years uh, you know, when President Obama was in office. The Senate passed a bipartisan immigration bill. There was a majority of the House that wanted to vote for that bill. There was an unwillingness to put that up for a vote in the House. Now, go back to 1981. There was a conservative budget bill. It was possibly going to pass. The Speaker had tools that he could have used to block the House from voting on it. He didn't do it. He didn't think his job was to block a majority from working its will. Mm -hmm. His job was to convince a majority to do what he thought was right. He wasn't happy when we lost, when the Reagan economic agenda went through. But within two years, the pendulum swung back. And after the 1982 midterm elections, there was a rebalancing of power. And we went through 80, you know, 1983 Social Security reform, 1986 bipartisan tax reform that actually stuck and lasted. And we did immigration reform in 1986. The list goes on. What was the most partisan time ever somehow morphed into the halcyon days of bipartisanship. So personally, I'm optimistic that when the, when the, the pendulum swings, there's going to be some space for that. It's going to take leaders who are willing to put their positions at risk. It's not going to happen unless there are leaders who are willing to say, let a majority vote on this in the House, whether I win or lose. I'm glad that's a great segue into my next question since uh, uh, we're in the business of training leaders here. Um, so, so yeah, so we, we're here at the Harvard Kennedy School. We um, basically are business models. We take in people who are deeply passionate about public service and we work hard to instill them with the skills that will help them lead the best and most productive careers in service. Um, so uh, one question I know I get all the time, uh, having recently uh, departed from DC, and I imagine you get as well, is the question from uh, someone like a promising uh, student at a school of government about whether this is a good time to be in government service, particularly with regard to the federal government in this country. So I was wondering uh, how you answer I, that I question. Do get, I do get this question quite often. Um, and interestingly, it's not just from American students. Half of the students at Columbia, where I'm teaching at the School of International Public Affairs, are international students. I get it from Italian students. I get it from uh, Chinese students. I get it from lots of people. It's a question that's being asked around the world, not just in uh, Washington and schools that train people to work in Washington. I, I, what I tell people and what I believe is that in any career in public service, you're going to have good years and bad years. There's going to be huge disappointments and they hurt. And if you leave the playing field when it hurts, you're not going to be there when there's an opportunity to get something done. You. To stay away now because you're disillusioned is essentially ceding the space to people who don't value 
the professional analysis that you're teaching people to bring to the job, the space will be occupied by someone. Mm -hmm. And I tell people they have to kind of get suited up, get on the field. They're going to get bruised sometimes. You know, they, they, they may not uh, feel good uh, sometimes. But it's not serendipity that puts you in the position to make a difference when you can make a difference. It's have you been out there? Have you learned enough, gotten enough experience, earned a reputation for both quality and trust? If you do all those things, you'll be there when the pendulum swings and you can get the things that matter to you done. One of the things that I get asked by a lot of young people now is, is there going to be any opportunity to do anything creative given the fiscal you know, situation that we have? And I mean, I answered that question in two ways. First, I spent a lot of my career cleaning up fiscal messes. It's not quite as inspirational as creating Social Security or the Affordable Care Act, but I feel pretty good when I look at a graph of our fiscal performance and I see that all the years that were good years just happened to coincide with the years that you know I had some substantial responsibility for it. That makes a difference in terms of our strength as a country. And you know, at the same time, we created the Child Health Program, which until the Affordable Care Act put more gave health care to more people than anything we've done since Medicaid. And we've expanded you know, things that matter in terms of whether it's low-income programs you know, like food stamps or, you know, or SNAP uh, or uh, uh, providing um, you know, for the, the education of the next generation. We did important things even in the years when we were very much in a defensive mode. Um, I hope every generation gets its chance to leave a mark like the Affordable Care Act or the kind of something the equivalent because it is inspirational to do something that is bigger than your own time that's going to be remembered, you know, 50 years uh, out. Um, you know, I look back at 1983 Social Security reform and it's, you know, a half a century later just about. I feel pretty good that there was a group of 10 or 15 of us without whom it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. And I was a kid at the time. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. Um, as long as you start talking about fiscal policy, um, kind of one more broad question, which would be, um, what kind of advice would you offer to 2020 Democratic presidential hopefuls uh, revolving, uh, regarding fiscal policy? Um, when I worked with you, I know you often conveyed Concern. I mean, you've talked about these wonderful programs, but you've also conveyed concerns about being fiscally responsible. Um, so, you know, what, what do you recommend for their platforms? So, I, look, I, I think it is a, a very positive thing that there is a, a full-throated debate right now about how do we tackle the big challenges of this in the coming uh, decades. Um, dealing with climate change, dealing with what remains broken in our healthcare system, dealing with the, the problems we have in education and housing. These are, all, these are all issues that I've spent a considerable amount of my own career trying to come up with answers to, and I'm respectful of the kind of daring willingness to think big to, to, to tackle them. At the same time, I think you have to approach it from a perspective that keeps your, your, your long-term trajectory uh, focused on doing things that work and that are sustainable. So what I will say to anyone who asks me is, yes, dream big, 
but before you sign on to a specific policy agenda, ask yourself a few questions. Does the initiative you're supporting have the effect of reducing inequality and building a stronger foundation for economic growth in the future? Is it fiscally sustainable? Uh, are you willing to do the tough things to pay for it? Because if not, you put in jeopardy an awful lot of things that are very important in this country, not the least of which is the social safety net, which always takes the brunt of attack when deficits are back in vogue. Is it workable? Can it be administered? Is it something that's been thought through? The devil is in the detail. If you put together something that doesn't work, it didn't feel so good when the website didn't work the first day when we rolled out the Affordable Care Act. Getting, we fixed it. You were, you were chief of staff at that point? No, it was after. Uh, it, it, it was, it was, it was it, right after I got to Treasury. After you got to Treasury, but, um, yeah. But it, 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 I felt the pain as if I was still there. It's not, it's not <laughs> the way. We all felt that yeah, pain. We all felt <laughs> the pain. And the, the fact that we fixed it was great. Yeah. But you got to get it right. I mean, we lost a lot of confidence because it rolled out in a way that just the technology didn't work. And um, I think the answer to those questions can be yes. It can't be yes for everything. There's going to have to be setting of priorities. You know, my, own, my own view is that we are going to need to deal with our fiscal challenges at some point. I don't think this is the moment when it's paramount, um, but we can't make it worse. We have to at least pay for the things that we undertake um, while you know, we're waiting for you know, both the public and the political debate to get back to you know, deficit um, concerns. Um, I think there is a, a certain tendency right now, and look, people like myself who were in the Clinton and Obama administrations are seen by many in the Democratic Party as, you know, we kind of ate our spinach. We balanced the budget in the Clinton years. We reduced the deficit from 10 to 3% of GDP in the Obama years. And in each case afterwards, don't take this personally, Gary, in each case there was a huge tax cut that wasn't paid for. And that had the effect of sending a message on the Democratic side, if you do the right thing, you, know, you don't necessarily get to control the ultimate outcome. Now, I don't learn from that that you know, we should go do the same thing. I wish we could get back to a place that's more bipartisan, like 1986 tax reform, like 1983 social security reform. That's what stops the pendulum from swinging, when you have real bipartisan agreements. As long as one side is doing it to the other, you know, it's not going to be stable as policy, and um, you know, it, 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 it's going to leave you in this conundrum of, um, if you think it's irresponsible to do for a tax cut, does it become responsible to do it to expand spending programs? I don't think either is right. Um, just before I open up to questions, let me just follow. I want to come back again on this point about going back to 1986. I mean, so you're making a good case for kind of there being a cyclical component. But on the other hand, you know, is some is some are some of the dynamics we're seeing now, are they related to kind of changes in, for example, the power that the parties have? And, and, and do you think we need kind of reforms? Or do you think we'd be well served by reforms related to that? So I, I actually think that we're in an era now that none of us can fully predict where it's going. The barrier to entry is pretty low in the sense that 
if you can figure out how to get three million followers and you can raise money in ten and twenty dollar contributions you can hang in a presidential race um, you know for way longer than you used to be able to in the days when there was a set universe of people who wrote checks to support uh, new candidates so I think to some extent the system is now broken open um, that doesn't necessarily mean you can govern that well that way I, mm -hmm. I, I think that that the, the, the challenge of governing is bringing a very diverse and often divided country together. All of the things that get you 3 million Twitter followers or 20 million Twitter followers quickly are things that tend to emphasize division and separate view. So it, it, it's, um, it, you know, it would be too easy to say that the party system is broken, but when I was young, the party system broken meant that the bosses had too much control. Yeah. To the extent that you say the party system is broken now, it's that nobody has control. Exactly. <laughs> um, all right, thanks. You still on Twitter? I've never been on Twitter. Oh, but you, yeah. you never had a Twitter? You didn't have not official even a No, I, I, Twitter? I, I actually did not think it was appropriate for this. I knew you weren't in your office. Uh, yeah. What did I know? <laughs> Uh, why don't I throw it open and get? I have lots more questions, but why don't I throw it open and get questions from uh, from the audience? I guess uh, if you would, um, you know, please. Uh, uh, I guess we have a mic going around, but please inter introduce yourself before you ask your question. Oh, you want my mic? <laughs> okay. <laughs> we can share. We'll share. There we go. Check your mic. Is that on? So you are. Identify climate change and obviously crosses generations, cabinets, political parties. Can you introduce yourself? Oh, Tim Strangy, the Seattle area. Thank you. So now you've got some cities and a few states that are actually getting ahead, maybe the U.S., some other countries are as well. Uh, you mentioned the past, even in the Nixon administration, air pollution, clean water, the creation of environmental protection agency. What kind of coalition? strategies, policies may be appropriate now to at least begin on a national level to create some solutions to what is global warming? I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, you know, the, to, to the extent that um, you look at it as an economic uh, challenge, um, you know, most people even those of us who are not trained as economists but who have worked in economic policy would say that if you put the real cost of, of burning fossil fuels in the price, it would have an impact on how much fossil fuel we burned and how quickly we would develop alternatives. At the beginning of the Clinton administration, we proposed a BTU tax that almost undid the administration in terms of its ability to work with Congress or the American people. Um, Something like that will only happen if it's bipartisan. It will only happen if everybody links arms and says, we've got to do something. The answer isn't just to do it all through regulatory policy. You know, to the extent that there's criticism of regulatory approaches, that's all we've had in this country for, you know, for decades. I and mean, we haven't raised the gasoline tax in for, for several decades. Um, you know, we haven't even had a serious discussion since the, the, the beginning of the Clinton administration in 1993 of anything that would be broader than that. Um, 
Yeah, a number of, of people have signed on to, uh, a, I think, interesting proposal to talk about taxing um, you know, the, the, the use of fossil fuels. My reservation uh, in looking at the proposal is it's a pretty broad rejection of the regulatory approach. Um, and I think that, the, for me, the right answer is a balance. It, it's not going to be an either-or. But you know, I would happily be part of bipartisan conversations to make something like that more achievable than it would be if either party ever tried to do it by themselves. I just don't think you're going to see, the, whether it's a carbon trading system, which we tried at the beginning of the Obama administration, or a tax solution, um, if it's one party or the other. Um, and in the, in the current environment where you have you know, a, a not insignificant debate over whether or not there's a problem, you're nowhere near getting that uh, bipartisan uh, approach. So if this was something we had 100 years to deal with, I'd say the time will come. The problem is, and this is not my area of greatest expertise, I hope we have decades. I don't know if we have decades. It may be a decade uh, you know, to deal with it. And that's scary when you look at um, how far we are from a, a political space where it's a safe conversation. Question in back. Jim First of all, referring to 1986 as the glory years, won't we need a lot of fans among Red Sox fans? Even though I worked for Tip O'Neill, I'm from Queens, and I was rooting for the Mets. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Queens originally, so I understand. Um, I view the number $22 trillion of debt a lot the way um, somebody who's afraid of um, heights looks at 30,000 feet. It's too big a number to comprehend. But if I divide that number by the number of taxpayers, every one of us taxpayers owes $181,000. That's a significant number. At what point do we need to stop really worrying about that? Because what I view to be more of us to pass that much debt onto our grandchildren because it takes more and more of the budget to service that debt. Look, the, the, the way a government, a nation, looks at it is different than the way a family looks at it. Um, you look at it as a percentage of GDP. You look at it in terms of what the debt uh, service cost is as a percentage of GDP in the budget. And, you know, I look at where we are now, and it's large, but it doesn't keep me awake at night because I don't see a day when we won't be able to finance the debt as it stands now unless something radically changes in terms of the dollars, the world reserve currency, in terms of the United States as a safe haven. Now, some days I wake up thinking we're doing everything we can to change that as quickly as possible because you know when you have trade wars and uh, I think a heavy-handed use of unilateral sanctions, that, that does have an impact in the long, long run on that, but not in the next 5, 10, 15 years. Um, the challenge is, how do you get your hands around keeping that number from growing out of control? And um, some people would say it's out of control now. Um, I think the danger is that you know, we just added trillions of dollars over a decade to the debt during a period of high growth. 
I mean, you know, we'd all like to see 4% growth, but, you know, two and a half, three percent 3% growth in the modern economy is strong growth. It's not when you should be building your deficit. If we hit a recession and we haven't repealed any of the basic laws of economics, there will be an economic cycle, there will be pressure on that deficit to grow. And I do worry about cycles now where if in good times we reach historically high levels of debt, in bad times if we don't hit historically high levels of debt, we'll end up turning a recession into a depression. And I worry about it first and foremost, it would constrain policy, not will our grandchildren be able to pay for it. Because I'm more confident our grandchildren will be able to pay the debt that we have now then I am confident that if we let a recession become a depression, they'll be able to dig their way out of that. And I think we've set up the, the, the kind of decision space very badly for whoever manages the next recession. Um, it's going to be very, very hard to do enough quickly enough um, to be effective. So the problem is not just the dollars per person. It's what it does in terms of the ability to manage the most important economy uh, in the world. So we're not Japan. Japan has a 200% of GDP deficit. They're doing okay, but most of their debt is held domestically. When they service the debt, the money stays in Japan. Our debt's about half held uh, around the world. So 50 cents on every dollar in interest we pay goes out of the United States. It's one of the reasons we have a large trade deficit. You know, these things flow back. Um, so I don't disagree with your premise that we need to get our hands around it but I don't think that that's the reason. Question in the third row over there. Um, thank you for your wonderful speech. I am Leah. I work in arts, curriculum design, and arts policy. Uh, I have a very interesting question. I met uh, Roger. He's an early investment of investor for the uh, Facebook, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, two weeks ago, and he told me like uh, the reason why Mark Zuckerberg convinced him to invest Facebook early on because uh, he tends to solve a social problem. Like uh, Roger then concludes, like every social problem leads to an economic op opportunity. So my question is like, uh, uh, what do you think? Like in the coming generation, what is the biggest social problem which can lead to the biggest economic opportunity. Thank you. Not sure uh, exactly uh, where to go with that. Um, look, I think we live in a time where um, technology is changing every aspect of life um, faster than we can keep up with even understanding it. I actually think the challenge is going to be how to make sure that we come up with rules where what we value in terms of personal privacy, what we value in terms of fair competition, um, can live harmoniously with the free competition of ideas and products in a space that could never have grown if it was being developed in a government program. So we've got this enormous benefit from technology that comes with you know, making things in our daily life uh, both work better and cheaper in, in, in so many ways. Um, but we have these risks that if they're not managed, 
will lead to, I think, a overreaction in terms of controlling them. And I don't think we're even in the first or second inning of figuring all that out. It's all very new. And um, yeah, if it would be, what, when I look at, at kind of um, social media versus financial technology, financial technology lives in a highly regulated space and kind of is always looking over its shoulder at how do we deal with legitimate questions of public regulation. Social media lives in a space that's really defined by free speech, which is government should have nothing to do with limiting it. What is happening is the development of both technology and the accumulation of information under that kind of guise of free speech is creating an enormously powerful economic force that I think is going to reshape life in so many ways. And we've got to figure out how to, how to deal with it um, responsibly so that it doesn't end up backfiring. Can I, can I, can I yeah, so I, I know we have more questions, but I just, can I take you back to um, the budget issues? Sure. Because I feel like um, I, I always admired how much expertise you had both on the substance and the politics around the budget. Um, and I think in particular, I learned a lot uh, from you uh, about Social Security, just because I, that was one of the areas that I uh, managed at Treasury. I was uh, overseeing this process of putting out the trust fund reports uh, for you. Um, and I just learned so much about um, kind of the program, your appreciation for the program, uh, kind of the problems with the program. And I just was wondering, uh, you know, why, while we're on the topic of the budget, whether we could kind of talk a little more about the long-term solvency problems. I think the last uh, trust fund report said the projected date of depletion for the uh, trust fund was, was 2034. You guys are not Three, three shorter. Um, <laughs> and we both know there are great advantages to uh, putting in fixes um, a long time ahead of time so that people have the chance to adjust. Um, and yet they're never, see and I think there's pretty widespread agreement about that, but there never seems to be any appetite uh, to kind of actually do that. So I was curious as to kind of what you think it's gonna take to actually kind of eat our spinach and do the hard work around this. So Karen um, had a, pretty large uh, set of responsibilities following the U.S. and global economy and making me literate on uh, these issues that uh, were popping faster than you could keep track of. There'll be quizzes on that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, uh, at some level, you know, the annual process of preparing a Social Security trustees report reminds you of how massive the responsibility really is. That you sit there and the assumptions that you're making, if they're not responsible, are gonna affect the basic financial soundness of you know, people for decades. And um, it, it, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty significant sense of responsibility you have doing that. Um, I have thought for 20 years that Social Security is the easy problem to solve compared to Medicare. I don't want to trivialize it, but it's just arithmetic. I mean, you have a certain number of people who are working, a certain number of people who are retiring. Life expectancy can be measured pretty accurately. 
and you know what your shortfall is, and then you have two levers. You can raise more revenue, or you can cut the amount you spend. And um, our inability to get a discussion going in the 1990s um, was something, actually I worked, Doug and I worked on that when Doug worked at the National Economic Council in the, in the Clinton administration. That was one of his issues. So I've worked with both of you on Social Security. Um, you know, we were actually open to a number of interesting ideas at that time. When we were in the budget negotiations before you came to Treasury at the end of, of when I was still at OMB, um, when, you know, we, we were in 2011, 2012 in budget negotiations, we were prepared in the Obama years to do some things that you know, would have come halfway. It wasn't very popular uh, on our side, um, but we were willing to. Um, we never got to a real bipartisan conversation uh, since 83. I mean, they, they, it, it, it's something that I don't think you can do um, with just one uh, half of the country. It, 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 in 83, it wasn't that we chose to work on it. The old age fund was going to run out of money. And one of the secrets was we actually were civil enough between a Republican White House and a Democratic Congress that we agreed a year in advance of when the fund was running out of money to schedule transfers from what was then the disability fund into the old age fund mm. at a time when the disability fund was overfunded. So the money would run out right after the elections at the kind of low point of political you know, power, at the high point of policy power. And then this commission was set up to move into that period of time having laid a foundation. There, you know, it, it was not safe to talk about either raising taxes or cutting benefits in 1983. We had plausible deniability between the White House and then the Speaker's office you know, for a year of negotiations that was going on through third parties on the commission. Um, but we kept keeping some ideas alive, letting the conversation go forward. And there was one indefatigable, you know, one of the founders of Social Security, Bob Ball, who had been the commissioner in both Democratic and Republican administrations, who, because of you know, relationships, happened to be as much trusted by Dick Darman as he was by me. And he was an honest broker, making sure we all knew if you raise the tax here in a certain way, you wouldn't lose President Reagan. If you talked about the COLA in this way, you wouldn't lose Speaker O'Neill. And we got creative. You know, we taxed benefits because we could call it a tax and the White House could call it a benefit cut. You know, we didn't cut the COLA, we delayed it for six months, which, as anyone who you know, kind of looks at the impact it's cutting, the COLA. We let language you know, smooth some of the edges. That doesn't happen when you're in your separate foxholes. That only happens when you're actually, you're not guessing, but you know what the other side can live with. So, so I think until we have another crisis, yeah, we're not going to get there again. So, I mean, so I, until it's kind of staring us in the face. The problem is that if you're going to have a revenue-based solution, it's, it would have to be an awfully big revenue increase to solve the problem in a year or two. If it's a benefit change, it would have to be a much quicker, deeper benefit change. So the options get harder by waiting. Mm -hmm. Policy would be much better if we could do it sooner rather than later. 
you know, I have my own preference for how I would resolve it, you know, and, and I, I do think we can afford to have the payroll tax support more of, particularly at the high end, of the cost of the program. But I know that any bipartisan solution is going to have some things that are not first on my list. And I don't know who's keeping the list of where the kind of things that both sides could live with uh, are. I, I remember when, when certain ideas were being used in the 1982 campaign where control of the House was at stake. The divided government that led to the kind of halcyon years of bipartisanship wouldn't have happened if that election had not gone the way it went. And I remember cautioning, you know, my boss, you know, and others, don't take that idea and poison it because we're going to have to deal with this in six months. We kept enough things off to the side so you could go to war on the general issue and still have things that you could come back to to be part of the solution. I just don't know if people are doing that now. Yeah, so other questions? Uh, hi, uh, I'm Dan from the ALI program. Um, I've got a question that you kind of alluded to earlier. I just want to delve into it a little bit more about the, you know, the weaponization of the dollar. Uh, you know, at one point, sanctions weren't very effective, and then since 9-11, they were applied such that, I guess, you probably want more wars than the DOD. Uh, however, is it being so overused today that this incentivizes uh, other players to develop alternative uh, reserve currency, you know, maybe some kind of a multinational crypto thing or even the euro? So I think the only reason the answer to that right now is no, is that there's not a serious alternative. If there were a serious alternative, I think we'd be in a very different place. The euro hasn't been strong enough. The RMB isn't ready. You know, Japan has had 20 years of economic problems. You know, they're suffering from a strong currency and a weak economy. Um, I have actually written some about this both in my last year at Treasury and since because I worry. I think sanctions are a hugely important tool. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I sat in that situation room where if we didn't have sanctions, the discussion would have been what level of force do we use. It was the last stop before you got to force. And in a world where you don't really want to proliferate the use of force, having effective sanctions tools is critical. I think the sanctions that are used unilaterally are dangerous. If you don't bring the whole world with you, um, it, it causes friction at multiple levels. Doesn't mean you shouldn't ever do it, but it should be the exception to the rule for the extraordinary priority. It shouldn't become, we just go right to you know, uh, secondary sanctions where anyone who does business with anyone who does business with the United States is sanctioned. Now, I look at the kind of track record over the last two years, and uh, I think some of the sanctions have been used effectively. You know, you know in Venezuela now, you, know, you see the power of the US economy when, for most of the last, 15 years, there's been virtually no economic contact between the U.S. and Venezuela. Part of Venezuela's oil gets sold in dollars. It turns out that that's a huge percentage of the hard currency in Venezuela, because when they sell to Russia, they're getting debt forgiveness. When they sell to China, they're getting some other extended loan package. The hard currency they're getting is a relatively small number of dollars. So bringing an international effort to play there and using sanctions is effective. 
I think the withdrawal from the Iran deal is the opposite. I think when you had an agreement that was reached by virtually every major power in the world, and uh, the U.S. broke it and Iran didn't break it, and the sanctions that were relieved when the nuclear deal was implemented were put back in place, it sent a message that I think will make it harder for sanctions to be effective. That is, you can do what we ask you to do and we still won't give you the relief. How many dictators are going to change their policy if they don't think that the United States will actually follow through? But it also leads to the countries of the world saying, well, we can't let one country make these decisions alone. So there's a special you know, purpose vehicle that's been set up with Europeans and, 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 and other countries. I don't think it's going to be a meaningful alternative to the dollar this year or next year. But I think the plumbing is being built so that if the U.S. continues on a path of overusing sanctions, you know, there will be ways to get around the U.S. that are more effective. And I worry about that because I think sanctions are critically important. So this, is, this fits in like Social Security. It's not a next year problem. The hardest thing to do in our system is to get people to think about what's going to be a problem 10 or 20 years from now. You think of the dollar, the value of the dollar as the world's reserve currency, we're probably on a path, call it a 50-year path, that history will change anyway, just because you know, you, nothing goes on forever. And after 100 or 125 years, some center of power that we don't see now will, will you know, start to emerge. I think if our policies take what could be a 50-year change and make it a 20-year or 25-year change, that is enormously consequential, and that's where I fear the overuse of sanctions is having an impact. Everyone who does not like the way we act unilaterally, thinking together about how to avoid our sanctions or do business around us, it's not a good place to be when your leadership in the world has come from everybody wanting to be more like you and to follow you, you know? All right, um, yeah, Yuri. Thank you, Professor. My name is Yuri. I'm a student here at Kennedy School from Ukraine. And to corroborate, Mr. Secretary, what you just said on the sanctions, from a national perspective, yes, they do work, they are effective, and they also, very practically, they save lives, lives. as in the case of Ukraine, where the U.S.-led sanction effort was actually um, the only practical tool how to deter further uh, Russian aggression against, against my country. What I wanted to ask you was um, your perspective on the international development efforts. And there have been some shifts in uh, U.S. policy in recent years, in the attitudes towards development work. And now uh, there will be a change in leadership in the World Bank. So if you could share your insights on the future of that sector. Thank you. So I, I think the, the evolution of the development space is happening um, on multiple levels. You know, when I went to the State Department in 2009, I met with my Chinese counterpart um, and I tried to talk about development projects we could do together. And the entire meeting was, we don't do development, we're a developing country, we do commercial transactions. It, you couldn't break through the language and have a conversation. China now is, through its Belt and Road Initiative and the Asia Infrastructure Bank, doing things 
that are massive that are in the development space. And the question is still, are they doing it from a perspective that's more commercial than development oriented? And the jury is out on that. That's something, you know, if they do it with the, the objective of really um, uh, growing the economies and creating more stability where they, where they go, that will become highly consequential in terms of the future of international development. If they go the other way, I think it's going to it's going to have the opposite effect. It's going to it's going to uh, uh, undermine uh, their leadership in that space. And I do believe the jury is out. I think they're struggling with how to do it. In the international financial institutions, you know, the U.S. and Europe have had the leadership roles in those institutions since the founding. It was totally appropriate um, when we were paying all the bills and when. It was, they were institutions that we were driving. Um, I don't think anyone will want to be either the president or the treasury secretary who loses uh, the US leadership in an organization. One of the things that we thought a lot about was how to grow the table so that the changing shares of world income and the changing shares of world responsibility were reflected so that everyone had a stake in staying part of the system. And it wasn't easy because we didn't have a Congress that was willing to increase our uh, share of funding on very many things. So I'll give you an example. The Inter-American Development Bank wanted to develop a new uh, program. It was to promote public-private partnership. The U.S. had no money to put into it. We reduced our share in the basic Inter-American Development Bank fund so that we still maintained the level of control we had, and we shifted the resources into the new vehicle so we could be part of what was changing in the world. Those are the kinds of tensions that are going to be there regardless of the politics or the policy of one administration or another. Um, I think that our goal in the United States ought to be not to have these institutions just stay the way they are, but how do we have them continue to play a constructive role in a changing world where we continue to have the substantial voice in them that I think we deserve. And um, you know, the fact that it took me five years to get IMF quota reforms through Congress didn't help our case. You know, it, it, we fun finally got it done, but we only achieved it um, after um, you know, China led so many other countries into alternative institutions. And I don't think the two are unrelated. Um, let's see. We have time for one more question. Um, yep, in the third row right there. Hi, um, I'm Sharon Dow, and uh, the question I have is, looking forward, what issues do you think um, those that are in governance of both private and uh, public companies like uh, myself should look out for and strive to gain perspective on in order to Sure, the proper capital inflows for growth and, and the U.S. currency remaining strong. So I think the biggest problem that companies ought to be internalizing is how do private sector decisions influence the climate for policy and political decisions uh, in a way that promotes um, lasting confidence in democracy and free markets. I think we have a lot of risks right now 
uh, that people are drifting away from having confidence that the system is on the level and works. And you know, I can't tell you how many CEOs uh, over the years have said to me, you know, I'm a Delaware corporation, my obligation is to my shareholders. I think that's a narrow view of responsibility as a CEO. I think that you know, CEOs have a responsibility to their franchise and the environment in which their franchise operates for many, in many cases, for eternity. And if you see things that are happening where just worrying about what the shareholder is seeing this year or this quarter is always going to trump the things you do to keep us together as a, as a place where democracy and free market capitalism are healthy, I think that's a way bigger threat than capital flows. Um, and I don't know how you influence that. Um, but it is something that I think we see in our politics, we see it in policy, and we see it in the anger around the world, um, not just about income inequality, but about a system that they increasingly think isn't on the level. And um, you know, in a democracy, people have to be part of a social compact. It's not that you always get your way. Um, and when people give up on that, it doesn't go to good places. I'll take a, a moderator's prerogative, ask you just last quick question. You were um, offering uh, some advice to the next Treasury Secretary, and you had, say, 60 seconds to do it. <laughs> uh, you know, what's, what's the most important thing you would tell that person? Um, I, I think the, the, the Treasury is an extraordinary institution. Um, I think probably speak for you that um, it, you, it, it, I've never worked any place with the combination of intellect, hard work, and esprit de corps, you know, where uh, it kind of permeates the institution. Leave it as strong as you found it. It's, it's a treasure, not just a treasury. And you have to make sure that, it, that, it's, that it's there because when there are unpopular positions that you have to take, being well-informed, having the ability to make the case you know, in a convincing way, is the difference between decisions going off the rails or not. And um, I was amazed how many times uh, there were you know, issues where we would have three or four people, not 20 or 30 people, or 50 or 100. And everyone in government would look to Treasury for the both analysis, the understanding of markets, the ability to take the policy and execute. And your little group, how many issues did you work on that had nothing to do with Treasury? I mean, I often would say that if you look at the kind of four corners of your responsibilities as Treasury Secretary, that defines about 10% of your time. The rest of your time is spent being kind of the representative who who speaks for the, the, the kind of economic um, probity of the, the, the policy, the thinking behind the policy. And, um, and you know, there were more than a few occasions where, you know, where that came into play in my time. And I think it's always the case. So that would be where I would start. The second thing I would say is that um, Treasury is as much of an international as domestic responsibility. To the extent that anything surprised me, uh, and having watched Treasury secretaries for dozens of years, 
I shouldn't have been surprised. But you don't advertise how much time you're spending around the world. You always talk about what you're doing in the U.S. economy. Because your job is to worry about the U.S. economy. In order to have the relationships with your counterparts around the world, you have to travel almost as much as the Secretary of State. And you have to do it in a way where nobody sees you traveling. So, <laughs> you know, it's like you just have to, to take it on as part of your responsibility because when the chips are down, whether it's a financial crisis or whether it's needing to get allies to work with you on an issue like sanctions on Ukraine or whether it's making sure the economy of Iraq doesn't unravel after you've pushed ISIL back on the battlefield, you're not going to do that in Washington. You're going to do that with your counterparts around the world because we don't have a checkbook where we can write 20, 30, 40 billion dollar checks to deal with those problems. We go to the IMF, we go to the World Bank, and we can't do that if, we don't, if the Treasury Secretary can't go to his counterparts or her counterparts and take some of that burden off of the President. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking your time to talk about it.